I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us, and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Elizabeth Day, author, journalist, podcaster, and all-round top girl. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this, and thank you too for your choice of book. Tell me what the title is and the author. The book is called The Ordinary Princess and it's by MMK. And thank you so much for having me on your delightful podcast because I get the chance to talk about it. And not only that, but I got the chance to reread it for the first time in so long. And it's been such a pleasure. When did you first read it? I first read it when I was about eight years old. And I was a child living in Northern Ireland, about half an hour outside Derry. We had moved there when I was four and we were living in the middle of the countryside. My father was a surgeon. He worked at the local hospital. Other than watching Blue Peter presented by Janet Ellis, one of my favourite things to do was to read. I was constantly reading, always had my nose in a book. And I think I was given The Ordinary Princess, either by a godmother or an aunt. And I had never heard of MMK, although she is obviously very well known as an author of adult books as well. And I just absolutely fell in love with this book from the first page. It really spoke to me on a profoundly deep level. Did you read it a lot? I mean, did you reread it often or did the first reading stay with you? The first reading stayed with me. It's very interesting because I did reread it several times, but as an adult, I'm not a rereader of books at all because I feel there are so many books to be read. Maybe it's that thing of getting older and you're worried you're running out of time. <laughs> so I feel like I've got no time to go back to ones that I've already read. But this one I did reread. And I also did a slightly strange thing in the, uh, at around this time, my beloved grandfather, who was called Bill, got macular degeneration. And so his eyesight started failing and he was an inveterate reader. He loved reading the times every single day. And my mother got in touch with the RNIB and they did this incredible service called Talking Newspapers, where my grandfather would be delivered a cassette and someone would read the newspaper to him. And I thought it was such a wonderful service that I wanted to offer my own skills <laughs> as, a, as a child narrator. And, and so I thought, I'm just going to do a completely unasked for demo and I'm going to read a book and record myself reading it. And the book that I read was The Ordinary Princess by MMK. And I think I got a very kind letter back from the RNIB saying, you know, thank you, but no thanks, but <laughs> not for now. <laughs> Were you from a family of readers? Was it much encouraged in your household? It was hugely encouraged. And I think that that is one of the great privileges of my life. I grew up in a house filled with books. I was raised by parents who believed books were really important and 
should be read at every available opportunity. They read aloud to me. My father used to read aloud to me every night. Um, the other book that I chose initially was Anne of Green Gables, which I understand another guest of yours had chosen already. But I always remember my father reading Anne of Green Gables aloud to me before I went to bed every night. And I loved books. I loved losing myself in the imaginative world. And at a very young age, I decided I wanted to write books myself. And the other great privilege was that my parents never laughed at that ambition. They always really encouraged it. And so my way of keeping in touch actually with my grandparents was to write them letters. And my mother would always say, why don't you write them a story? And so I would start writing stories that my grandparents would then read and and laugh at um, in a nice way because they attempted to be funny. And so so yes, I grew up surrounded by by books and I'm so, so grateful for that. And I have a great reverence for books as physical objects as well still, as you can see, because I'm recording this podcast in front of a huge bookshelf. And a useful ladder, I see, Elizabeth, which is you know, yeah. as a person of a uh, not very tall person, I'm, I'm grateful for any sense of being able to get to the top shelf. So that's a very good idea. Do you climb up that ladder? Yes, the ladder actually goes to a storage area, but you can use it to get to the highest bookshelf as well. It reminds me, I don't know if you've seen the film My Fair Lady, but there's a library scene in that with Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle played by Audrey Hepburn. And it always that ladder always reminds me of that. Yes. I'm making my house sound very grand. <laughs> I remember that scene very well. And also the time I saw My Fair Lady, it was when film still had an interval and I had a peach sorbet in the middle, which is oh. just as beautiful as Audrey Hepburn in my imagination. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a beautiful cinema to go to that offers peach sorbet. Absolutely. And an interval. I think that, that should be returned. I think it was a service to the nation. Did you have siblings? Yes, I have one older sister. She's four years older than I am. And was she a voracious reader too? Yes, she was actually. She was. And because she was four years older, I always hugely looked up to her and her reading was always more advanced than mine was. We went to a beach resort called Port Salon for our annual holidays. And I always remember her reading the books that my parents were reading after they'd finished with them. So she read a whole set of David Lodge as a teenager. And I remember her reading War and Peace over many, many months. And I found that so exquisitely impressive. Uh, I could only sort of aspire to the levels of this great reading. So yes, she did read. And I remember actually another one of my favourite childhood books was my Naughty Little Sister by Dorothy Edwards and illustrated by the legendary Shirley Hughes. And I really related to it as the younger sister. I sort of, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very funny. Yeah, and that's the theme in these books. Tell me the story of The Ordinary Princess. Because I'd oh. never read it before and I absolutely loved it. Oh, I'm so glad. But do you know what? I was um, messaging with your daughter, Janet. I was messaging with Sophie and she said she'd read it. Yes, as a child. and she loved it. And she loved and, it. Yes, because yeah. I had my copy my much my much stickered copy because this is what I do when I'm reading I make little notes to myself along the way and she picked it up and she said I had this book I love this book why have you got this book so yes there's obviously a, oh. a deep seam of connection here which I'm thrilled about so just tell me briefly the story of it because it's a great one so it's a story about a princess she's called Amethyst she is the youngest of seven sisters all of her previous siblings have been beautiful and blonde and princess-like and made successful marriages but when Amethyst is born, she has a christening and they invite fairy godmothers and the fairy godmother grants a wish for this baby. And uh, one of the fairy godmothers is this slightly crabby older woman called Crustacea. <laughs> 
And she, because she's a bit grumpy because she got caught in traffic on the way to the palace, (laughs) she grants a wish of ordinariness. She said, maybe ordinary. So when Princess Amethyst grows up, she becomes ever more ordinary. She becomes known as Amy. She's got freckles on her nose and she doesn't really enjoy all the royal pomp and circumstance. And eventually they try and marry her off and she runs away and she starts living as a quote unquote ordinary person. And she finds work as a kitchen maid in a palace in a different province. And when she's a kitchen maid in this palace, she meets a man of all work called Peregrine and they start hanging out. They get on very well. They have a similar sense of humour and then plot twist, (laughs) spoiler alert, it turns out he's actually a king in disguise and they end up getting married and living happily ever after. And it's just such a charming story. And also shot through with real humour. There's an enormous playfulness with the names of places and things, which obviously it seems as though MNK herself relished, really relished doing. But all the detail in it has a kind of dual quality. I mean, when she's having her christening feast before the, the spell is cast, there's a page of descriptions of the food that's being prepared and the decoration in the palace. And there was something of that really jeweled vividness in the descriptions of some of the scenes in the palaces and actually in the forest too, but particularly in those party scenes, which is really lovely. I was relieved when I started rereading this book because I had worried that maybe it wouldn't have aged that well. And actually it had aged better than I could ever have imagined because you're so right. The quality of the prose, the description is so evocative, but it's not overdone. It doesn't feel like it ever invades the pace in any way. It just adds to it. And I also love those banqueting scenes. And I remember loving as a child, the scale (laughs) with which she wrote all the scenes in the palace, you know, sort of 400 second assistant chefs and um, 32 ladies in waiting. And it was so delightfully specific and also funny. And yeah, those scenes in the forest where Peregrine and Amy end up building a hut and they give it a carpet of green moss and they put moss on the roof as well and I was obsessed ever after reading this book with building my own tree house I just loved the idea of a tree house and having my own space in this beautiful moss-like carpet and my father did try and build a tree house but then he sort of lost interest and so it just became a kind of platform a single wooden platform in a tree that wasn't covered at all and wasn't at all like the tree house so evocatively described by MMK. Yeah I'm just going back to your father though because presumably as a surgeon he was otherwise is good with his hands. <laughs> yes, and he was also otherwise engaged, to be fair. He had far more important things to be getting on with. <laughs> I think there's a sense throughout the book of the sort of realistic nature of being a child too, that Amy is constantly held back by her own limitations. You know, it's, it's difficult to climb out of the palace to climb down the wisteria. There's quite a long description of how hard it is to actually get into the forest and find her way. There is a sense, isn't there, especially at that sort of age when you're reading it at age eight, and I think Sophie was probably about the same age, when you're just beginning to realise what agency you don't have in the world, how little control you have. I mean, you can't Mm. really even choose what to eat, which is such an important thing as an adult, such an important thing. She's not without normal or ordinary vices and virtues too. And she's briefly envious of her sisters from time to time because their lives are 
laid out forever. You know, they have a, yeah. a pattern and a path as princesses that they will never deviate from. So I think there's something in that analyzing that split between realizing that at some point you will have to make your own choices. How exciting. But at some point you will have to make your own choices. How terrifying. Yes. Perhaps it's better to be a princess after all. It's so true. And I think now that you've asked me whether I had a sibling, I completely related to that. Clearly, that idea of, I wish I was older and had more agency and I wish I was more independent. I can remember really longing to be a grown up and to be in charge of my existence from, as you say, what to eat and what clothes to wear. And and I remember another bit that I hugely related to as a child is when she she swapped her princessy dress with all of these jewels on it with her friend that she made in the forest, Clorinda, which is how she manages to disguise herself when she's out of the palace. But that dress becomes increasingly threadbare the more time she spends in the forest and her you know shoes fall apart. And so that's why she has to find work as a kitchen maid because she needs to save up money to buy a new dress. And I related to that so much. I just did that idea of saving your pocket money for something that you wanted or needed to buy and doing odd jobs so that you could get more of it. I just found it immensely satisfying because that, that was the limit of my control over my life. Like that was how I could feel independent. And I love the fact that Amy is so, she's sort of quietly confident. She knows who she is and stands up for herself in a sort of really delightful way. And I liked that as well, because she's not passive. Things don't happen to her. She makes things happen for her. Yes. And her, her parents are similarly drawn, aren't they? They feel like real people who happen to wear a crown. I mean, there's a, a meeting that her father's having when his crown keeps slipping over one eye because his hair isn't <laughs> quite big enough anymore to hold it in place. And again, before she runs away, she discovers this terrible plot that her parents have hatched, because obviously, as being the ordinary princess, no prince will ever look at her. So they decide to hire a dragon <laughs> to lay waste to the country so that some prince can come in and kill the dragon and therefore claim her as his bride all the while without seeing her and how terribly ordinary she is. And she discovers this. And then there's some courtier who has to go off and sort of cancel the dragon hiring. <laughs> I love that bit too. And also it, it's very satirical in a way about, about <laughs> government. And there's this yes. line that I was just remembering was there. And it's about cancelling the dragon. And the king has appointed this minister. So it says, the minister in charge of hiring a suitable dragon had to write and cancel his order for dragons. One laying waste the land for the use of. <laughs> and it's so funny. And I love the fact that she doesn't ever patronise the children that she knows will be reading this book. I yes. think that's really the key to being an incredible children's author, is not to patronise your audience and to know that even if they don't understand everything, it's worth putting it in because it makes you want to know more. And that's how we evolve as readers. And I just, I, I love that line. Yes. <laughs> and there's absolutely no doubt that sense of humour to her is incredibly important. And most of the descriptions of her and Peregrine, Perry, are about them laughing together, about yes. them laughing together. And when they're about to get married and they are bedecked in their finally revealed as true prince and princess, he turns and winks at her. And I thought, oh, that's good because that's dispelled any Dominic Rabness out of any yes. wink ever given. <laughs> feels very much that they're equals. Yeah. It's just, it's so nice. I'd forgotten how nice it is to read 
a book where people generally try to be decent. They're decent and nice and kind to each other. And even the supposedly quote unquote evil fairy godmother isn't evil at all. She actually does something that is a great gift. And it was so nice feeling like, oh, nothing bad is going to happen. It was just really refreshing. (laughs) Do you think though that um, there's something, I'm playing devil's advocate here, there's something Mm -hmm. that's a bit of a cop out in that the only way the ending is resolved is that they do become royal at the end. Now I have to, I yield to no one, I really love this book and I love the humour of it, I love the earthiness and and the descriptions. But I thought, did she, I wonder, feel that she had to answer that childish need that actually what we do want at the end of it is a twinkly tiara and a crown? Is it, is it still there? It's so interesting. I think she does a very good job of balancing that because they go for holidays in their cabin in the forest. That's where they spend their honeymoon, which I liked that idea. But it's an interesting one because since reading this book, I have gone and become an author myself. Now, I've written five novels and endings are very, very interesting because no matter what ending you write there will be people who complain about it. So I've done the neat narrative bow where I feel like actually my characters deserve some happiness. And I've had the Amazon reviewers going, this is far too neatly tied up for, for my liking. And then I've done the the edge of suspicion. Maybe this hasn't turned out quite the way we anticipated and what might happen next. The sort of mysterious last sentence that leaves a big question mark over what's gone before. And I've had Amazon reviewers going, it's so annoying that I didn't find out what happened in the end. And it was, wasn't neatly tied up at all. It was a real disappointment. And so I don't think you can win. But for my personal proclivities... I prefer things tied up. And so actually, even if it is a cop out, I'm glad that she wrote that ending. And it's probably of its time. I mean, I forgot to, what, when was it published? I didn't even 1980, look. actually. 1980. 1980. You see, mm. I think it's a pretty modern book in many respects, but in that respect, it's definitely still of its time. I, I agree. I don't think it's dated in as much as it's a satisfying read. And I would happily hand it to any child of either sex and say, you'll enjoy this. It's funny. I think that's the, the key to yeah. it. And also, you know, obviously it takes you out of yourself a little and you can imagine, as you say, building things in the forest. Although, is that not a little tiny steal from Peter Pan? Just a tiny, tiny steal? Well, there's no such thing as originality in fiction, (laughs) is there really? Everything's been said before. (laughs) Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, Elizabeth, tell me where you read. Did you take your books away somewhere or did it not matter where you were? 
I love this question. Yes. When I was little, I read in bed and in the bath, but I had a specific reading place in our home in Northern Ireland, which is that our back garden was overrun with enormous rhododendron bushes that had grown for years and years and years. And if anyone has similar rhododendron bushes, they will know that there's this network of branches underneath the canopy of leaves that you can clamber into and be almost entirely disguised. And so I used to go to the highest point of that rhododendron bush and that was my favourite reading spot. And we also used to have sheep. We had four sheep. (laughs) And every year, my parents would do the gargantuan task of shearing them by hand, if you can imagine that. And I would take some of the wool and put it into a plastic supermarket bag. And I would make myself a reading cushion. And I would go and sit on that cushion and read my book and peer out over the countryside. And that was my favourite reading spot. That is both delightful and, again, in terms of your father's (laughs) surgeon hands, slightly worrying. (laughs) I I think he just should have worn gloves all the time. (laughs) It was bonkers, but in the best way. You told me you wanted to be a writer when you were little. Did that continually make sense to you all the way through your growing up, going to school, going to university? Or was it something that you felt you might have to to leave for different days? Or did it really stay through you like a stick of rock? It really stayed through me. It's, I think, been the one thing I've always been sure of. And I'm not entirely sure where it came from because I remember wanting to write books aged four and there aren't any writers in my family. I just knew that's what I wanted. And actually having made that decision, it became a sort of virtuous circle where because my parents knew that they encouraged me to write and I wrote. And so then I got better at it and English became my subject. And then at the grand old age of seven, I thought, well, to learn more about writing, I should really become a journalist first. So that's what I'll do. So then that became my focus. And I did a lot of student journalism and I went straight into journalism after university. But I always knew that the ultimate goal for me was was writing novels. And I'm very grateful for that because it made a lot of my decisions a lot easier. I knew what subjects I was going to take at A-level and I knew what work experience I was going to pursue because it was all to this end goal. And actually, one of the greatest days of my life was my first book being published. It really did live up to my imagined hype. I felt if nothing else, I have done this thing and I have made this dream come true. And it's enormously important to me. And I feel like it's more of a vocation than a job. I can't imagine a day when I will ever not write. I need to do it. I need to write and I need to read in order to make sense of the world. And the great thing, as you will know, Janet, about writing books is that you never feel lonely. And that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, no, it really is. And also that, um, I mean, mine, mine is a sort of split vocation, really, because I decided to be an actress aged about four or two when I didn't really know what it meant. But again, all my choices from reading an assembly to learning a poem were all about the great ambition. And actually writing is very similar for me now, because that's what I do. And it is that thing of thinking, I know who I am when I'm doing this, even mm. if I'm completely yes. adrift in a sea of narrative, character, 
terrible timeline decisions, which is <laughs> my maths is not up to it. But there is something grounding about it. I'm sad for people who don't have it, but I yeah. absolutely recognize it in other people too. I totally agree. You've expressed that so beautifully. And actually, I used to say that writing made me feel untangled. And then I started doing yoga. And there's a, the, obviously people talk about being in the flow in yoga. And I've never really quite understood it when it comes to yoga. I'm still in the process of learning, but I understand it when it comes to writing. That's when I feel in my flow. Yeah, I haven't ever got on with yoga, I have to say. <laughs> But it is, um, it is something of a, an anchor, isn't it? A safe harbor. And I think when you read a book you love, it's that too. And like you, I don't reread often. I think I stopped rereading when I realized I couldn't remember books clearly enough. Me neither. The first time round. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm giving myself double angst here. I'm reading a book that I had second time around, don't know how it ends. And I probably should. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. I never remember plot or character. I just remember that I loved a book. I remember exactly. the feeling it left me with. Yeah. <laughs> I hugely, and I, I'm not just saying this, I, probably, I hugely enjoy your novels. I mean, I oh, think you, you. you achieve a, an honesty in writing, which is beguiling because I suspect it's not entirely the truth, but then it shouldn't be either. But do you know how your books are going to end when you start them? First of all, I'm so thrilled that you read my novels. Thank you. That <laughs> means the world to me. And what a lovely thing to say. I sometimes know how they're going to end. <laughs> so generally speaking, I'm the kind of novelist who doesn't know much about the plot when she starts writing. The most important thing for me is character because I need to get into the voice of a character to understand how they act and that's going to inform the plot. So it's always that way around. It varies a little book to book. So with my latest book, Magpie, there's a big plot twist in the centre and I knew what that me, plot twist was. It made me shiver. That book truly made me shiver. And I was oh, reading it in Brad Sunshine in the oh. abroads. So yeah, well oh, better. Um, but well, Magpie actually is an interesting one because that's one that there is a plot twist, but the ending I absolutely didn't know when I was writing it. And the ending that I chose originally was a different one from the one that was published. So I redrafted it because the initial ending was one of the ones that didn't tie things up and that left a stain of suspicion over one of the characters. And my beloved editor said, I just don't find it satisfying. And so I rewrote it and gave my characters a much more optimistic point of view. And that's a classic example of lots of people saying, oh, I was a bit disappointed by the ending. I was like, oh. <laughs> But I, but actually, again, I had to write that knowing who my characters were. So generally speaking, I don't know how books are going to end, but I do know vaguely what might happen along the way. And I think the ending thing is always somehow a kind of catch up of a reader having got to the end of your book and not quite wanting it to finish anyway. I always think, you know, if I've really enjoyed a book, the ending is never going to be, oh, good, and close the book. It's never going to be that because you have invested a part of yourself emotionally with the characters. You have gone on their journey and therefore whatever happens to them in the end, they go on somewhere in the book and you have to live without them. It's hard. That is a great way of looking at it. That's, that's the most 
a generous way of looking at it. And I'm going to adopt that mindset from now on. If someone's disappointed with my ending, it's because they loved my book so much they didn't want it to end. I love well, it. They, they got there, didn't they? They got exactly. there. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Have you ever been tempted to write for children? Yes, immensely, actually. Um, and I've always been slightly nervous because I know what enormous impact my favourite children's books had on me and how talented you have to be to write for that audience and to edit yourself for that audience. So I would love to in the future, but actually I am currently engaged in writing a non-fiction book for teenagers about failure, which is obviously my other specialist subject. And um, I'm enjoying that a lot. And I think I'm very tempted to write for much younger children to do a sort of picture book. I'm very good at drawing cats. (laughs) That's the sort of limit of my artistic ability. But I feel like I could write a book about a cat. (laughs) That sounds excellent. (laughs) That's my pitch. Play to yours, yes. Well, we've we've had to allow the F word in, haven't we? Fail, which I know it's weirdly now associated with you in a in a very sort of dichotomous way because also you've made such a success of it. So almost almost disqualified yourself. But nevertheless, obviously I've listened to your podcasts and I've listened to other interviews you've given on this subject until I'm sure you are almost weary of being the spokesperson for this particular group. Nevertheless, we are all failures at something. We are all a constant work in progress. And somehow admitting to failure is to absolutely succeed at it from the word go, isn't it? The minute you've let it in. Exactly. Because I think we as a society, and it's interesting, I, obviously, I'm looking for clues in this book to an adult world, because an adult wrote it, and it's for children. But it's not hugely keen on a kind of positivity. And I think that changes. The fashion has changed now. We encourage people to be positive all the time about everything that happens in life, you know, and if you are positive in the way that you might wish something into existence, positivity can actually steer your path in life. And I heartily disagree. I think positivity is very overrated. I could not agree more. And I feel frustrated that sometimes the work I do on failure is misinterpreted as toxic positivity, as my saying, well, everyone needs to just be upbeat and Pollyanna-ish about the fact that we fail. (laughs) And it's not that at all. It's actually, I'm arguing for an entry point for negative feelings and sadness and grief and acknowledgement of mistakes, because all of that is part of what makes us human. And when we seek to deny them, and when we see those neon signs in yoga studios flashing good vibes only, it makes us feel as though we are failures if we are not feeling 100% positive on any given day. So it actually marginalizes the human experience. And I just don't want to deny my myself that half of life. So actually, that's why I think it's important to embrace failure, not that we should think of failure as always positive, just that it's part of us and it is what makes us human. And actually, it's a very democratizing force in that way, because it happens to us all one way or the other. Yeah. And I guess as creatives, we are allowed to tap into it far more than most people are because it's accessing that that helps you build the sort of Lego or any other suitable brick construction of what you're trying to do both in life and particularly in art. And actually, there's probably a liminal space in the middle, isn't there, where you learn from experience, but you don't keep going back to it to say, that's why, that's why I'm always late or whatever it happens to be. Yes, exactly. And actually, I realise how formative this book, The Ordinary Princess, has been 
in terms of my life philosophy, because actually acknowledging failure rather than going around pretending that everything is a wild success all of the time is part of what makes us ordinary. But isn't that wonderful in its own way? I'd much rather be ordinary than extraordinary in that respect, because my work and my life's purpose, I feel, is all about connection. And we connect through shared vulnerability and shared experience. And we are all likely to have had experiences of things going wrong. (laughs) And I realised revisiting this, how influential MMK has been. And I've never read her adult books. I've never read The Far Pavilions. And now I'm thinking, I absolutely will. Have you, Janet? Not recently, though, so I could happily reread them. And was um, it good when you, I know you won't remember anything about it plot-wise, but did it leave you with a good feeling? Yes, it's <laughs> it's the vividness of it. But she does have um, an ability, I think, to ground herself in fiction, you know, which, which again, I... I admire people who write science fiction. I do not think I could attempt it myself no. because I need to look up and see at least some of the real world through the window. But even when she's imagining life, you know, this this book is grounded in domestic life, in the, the work that she had to do as a scullery maid, in the way that she had to live, both as a princess and as a scullery maid, as a very, very ordinary person. And it's beguiling that approach. Absolutely. And even her animal friends... They're convincing animals. They're not talking animals or anything. They, you know, <laughs> they make animal sounds. And I, I like that as well. I like her observations of the natural world and the descriptions of it. I just, I, I was so thrilled to reread this book. Thank you for the opportunity you gave me to do that. And I know you get this all the time, but you really were so formative in my childhood. I have a blue oh. piece of badge. <gasps> yes. Oh my goodness. One of the highlights of my Yes, and I got it because I drew you all pictures. I drew a picture of you parachuting because I know that was your thing. I drew a picture <laughs> of Peter Duncan as Blue Peter and oh. I drew Simon Groom with his dog with Bonnie. And oh. and the producers were so lovely. I actually asked for a Blue Peter badge for me and my sister and they wrote back saying we've sent one for you but your sister will have to do something herself. And I was like Good for them. You know, it was it was very <laughs> literal, and also the the correspondence unit took up most of the man hours of the program. So <laughs> we signed every single picture ourselves. You know, nobody ever did it for us, and it took our waking hours, frankly, because any break from rehearsing the program, you'd go into makeup, which sort of doubled as the office, and find more stacks of photos with the three of us on it, and you'd God, sign away. I hope that sustains. I'm sure it does. I haven't investigated. But that thing of the correspondence unit being the beating heart of the program and that anyone who won a badge, it would be logged. And quite rightly, they couldn't send one out to your sister too, that kind of thing. Because those are the things as a child that you hold very dear. And also, it goes back to our earlier discussion, doesn't it, about agency. Children are so keen on fairness. Fairness is, you know, key and they, they cannot bear it if things aren't fair. Yes, exactly that. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well done. Trip, I think lovely trip down memory lane. <laughs> but I can't thank you enough for introducing me to this book, and also for Sophie reminding me that it was one of her favourites too. Because I thought, oh, that's really lovely, and just the way she picked up and held it and recognised the cover was enough to make me know that it had the same effect on her as it did on you, and now on me. And I'm more than happy to recommend it to any and all. And I can't thank you enough for taking us to it. It's been such a pleasure. I've loved every single minute. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. 
This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.